The stuff of tabloid fodder and gossip, the death of Natalie Wood has become the source of ha harsh assumptions that border upon or become the slanderous and libelous. The victim, a bright, talented, and loving woman lost far too early, is also lost amid the efforts to paint her husband, Robert Wagner, as a calculating murderer who has gotten away with his alleged crimes. It's a sad state of affairs for a multitude of reasons, not the least of which is the reduction of a gifted actress into what amounts to an extra in the final acts of her life story. Welcome to the Skellicast, Episode 6, The Death of Natalie Wood. As always, listeners are cautioned this episode will contain discussion of autopsy findings and related matters that some may find unpleasant or disturbing. Likewise, this episode is going to involve a review of some legal matters that may not be everyone's cup of tea. Viewer discretion on all of these matters is advised. Natalie Wood was, for many years, one of those Hollywood success stories that people aspire to emulate. From the 1940s through the late 1960s, she featured in many of the important films that were to come out of Hollywood, including Miracle on 34th Street, Rebel Without a Cause, West Side Story, Splendor in the Grass, The Searchers, and Gypsy. Several Academy Award nominations were the reward for her hard work. In the 1970s, she slowed her acting schedule to have children with her two successive husbands. A split with Robert Wagner, a talented actor in his own right, was followed by a marriage to a producer which ended in divorce. Wagner and Wood found themselves back together and remarried several years prior to her death. During the early morning hours of November 29, 1981, Natalie Wood, Robert Wagner, and Christopher Walken were staying on Wagner's yacht, The Splendor, during a weekend break from the filming of the movie Brainstorm. Also present was the captain of the yacht, one Dennis Daver. Like most yachts of this size, there's what's referred to as a tender or dinghy, which is a small boat that's used to get back and forth between the shore quickly and efficiently. In this case, it was tied off at the stern of the boat for ease of use. Miss Wood was reported missing by Wagner, and her body was spotted floating face down by the crew of a Sheriff's Department helicopter en route to help with the search. The body was recovered about 200 yards off of Blue Cavern Point by L.A. County lifeguards. The tender, the dinghy, was located adrift or beached on an offshore bar, reports vary on this, south of the location where the body was found. The previous afternoon, the group on the boat arrived at a restaurant, Doug's Harbor Reef, and proceeded to drink and dine. A couple of bottles of champagne were consumed during dinner, in addition to any drinks that were served before the meal. Around 10 p.m. or 10.30, depending on which source you use, the group left the restaurant was observed by the manager to be so intoxicated that he notified the Harbor Patrol to make sure that they all got back to their boat safely. When exactly Miss Wood went overboard is uncertain. The original statements from Wagner put the last time she was seen at about 23.45, 11.45 p.m. on the 28th. He went to bed and stated that he awoke to find her absent from both the bed and the vessel. A search was requested at that time. The pathologist who performed the autopsy, noting the difficulty that still exists even today in estimating time of death with precision, said that he felt the time of death was likely around midnight. When recovered, the body was clad in a flannel nightgown and socks. A red down jacket was located with the body, but it was not on the body at the time of the autopsy examination. No damage to the clothing was noted, nor were there any signs of blood present on the garment. A foam or froth was noted issuing from the mouth and nostrils both at the scene and during the external exam portion of the autopsy. Two questions that came up in letting other podcasters read the script for this before I recorded it. Those questions were, how does this foam form, and why does it last long enough to be seen? The foam you see in drowning victims, and also in people who have fluid in their lungs for other reasons, like congestive heart failure, it's formed in this way just like if you were to take and put soap into a bucket of water or a sink and put your hand in and rapidly move your hand back and forth to mix the two. The process of breathing with liquid in the airway 
has exactly the same effect as your hand moving back and forth in the water. It stirs it up and it creates foam. The reason it lasts so long compared to, say, soap bubbles um, is because of proteins that are present in the lungs. Uh, the most common are what are called surfactants. These help to keep the lungs inflated, basically. They reduce the surface tension of the air sacs, the alveoli. Well, when water enters the airways, it washes this surfactant away. It actually helps cause the alveoli to collapse somewhat in certain patients. And that surfactant mixed in with the water helps to make it foam. The only injuries that were present on Miss Wood's body were all of a superficial nature. There were non-patterned contusions on multiple parts of her body. There was a 4 inch by 1 inch area roughly on the back of the right forearm. Now, a lot of people have tried to point at this and say, it's a defensive injury. She put her arm up to defend herself. Now, you can have somebody put their arm up and get contusions from the warding off of blows. The problem with that is, is this is on the completely wrong side of the arm for that. If you have a defensive injury, if somebody puts their hand up, normally you put your hand up, palm out. So if you have your hand palm out, the front of your arm that's exposed to the person that's attacking you is the opposite side from where these contusions were present on this wood. These were on the palmer side of the arm. Basically the back of the hand, but between the wrist and elbow. This is not a defensive injury, most likely. These also are not the type of marks you see from somebody grabbing someone. There was also a contusion of the left wrist on the side of the ulna, which is the bone on the, that makes up the forearm on the side where the fingers are. The radius is on the thumb side. The easy way to remember which side of the arm the radius and ulna are on is the thumb sits on the radius and the ulna supports ulna fingers. That's the stupid way I was taught to remember it as a kid and it stuck with me ever since. There was a deformity noted of one of her wrists. However, this was not a product of acute injury. This was not due to a fracture being present. It, it was either a instance of having a previous fracture that had long since healed with less than ideal alignment, which happens, or there may have been a congenital deformity that caused the distal end of the ulna to be displaced. It has nothing to do with this case, but I'm mentioning it here simply for the sake of thoroughness. There were numerous small contusions over her lower legs, bilaterally. Some people have pointed at these injuries and said that these are from her being dragged or whatever, manhandled after she was unconscious. These are not what you would see from somebody being dragged across a deck or a dock. Decks and docks are not smooth surfaces by nature. You don't want them to be smooth because when they're wet you want them to have traction. If you're dragging somebody across them, you're not going to get bruises. You're going to get abrasions. You're going to get lar whatever part of that body that's contacting the surface is going to be abraded, almost sandpapered. If this had a teak deck, it'd be very likely she'd have pretty substantial abrasions as a result if she had been dragged. You also have to keep in mind, Natalie was not a very big woman. Her autopsy report puts her at five foot four and 120 pounds. Now, if, as has been claimed by some, two grown men, Wagner and the yacht captain, were moving her unconscious body to toss it over the side, there would be no need to drag her. I'm five foot eight or five foot nine, depending on the convenience store I'm fle um, uh, leaving, and around 185 pounds. 
I could pick up a person Natalie's size and carry her with minimal problem. Wagner's five foot eleven and considerably huskier than I am. This is another case where those trying to stitch together an argument for how an alleged crime occurred cannot seem to grasp that having conflicting versions of what happened undermines your argument. There was another question that was brought up by someone I was talking to in the process of writing the script, and that was the mention in the autopsy report that these were non-patterned contusions. And she asked that I explain what the difference is between a, a patterned contusion or a patterned abrasion and a non-patterned injury. Simply put, can you identify with certainty what caused this? Can you match it to an implement? Like, for example, if I hit you with a baseball bat, it's going to leave a very distinctive mark. It's actually a clear area in the center normally with two bruises on either side because the bat striking causes the blood vessels in the middle to be compressed, the blood moves out to the sides, and then you get the bruising along the edges. Now, the problem is that's a pattern injury, but it's not necessarily a conclusive pattern injury. It, the size would be an argument, but it could be done by a, a, a lead pipe, for instance, or a piece of wood that wasn't a baseball bat that's roughly that same size. Other pattern injuries you may see are people who've been pistol whipped, beaten with a gun, or contact gunshot wounds. You'll see sometimes see patterned marks uh, from tight contact gunshot wounds where it'll actually be, you can tell what type of gun made the wound because it'll have whatever the pattern of the area around the barrel is, and that can leave a very distinctive mark. That's a patterned injury. A non-patterned injury is everything else. Now, you have to use caution in assessing what may appear to be a patterned injury because of the human brain's tendency to see pattern where there is none. An example of this is if you have a bunch of small bruises in a, sm in a confined area, the urge of the brain to figure out a pattern may make these completely unconnected bruises appear to be the result of finger marks or something like that. It's why you never take anything in forensics in isolation. This is why physical evidence is always circumstantial evidence. Also noted at autopsy was an abrasion of the left cheek. Um, this abrasion, which is the easiest way to explain an abrasion to somebody, is a scraped knee or road rash or rug burn. This abrasion was vertically oriented in what's referred to as a brush type. Basically, it's produced by the contact with an abrasive surface that's not, a, there's not a lot of pressure applied and you just kind of take the surface of the skin and rough it up and kind of maybe, there may be small pieces taken off along with it, but it's not a horrifically bad injury. This is likely from the contact with the side of the tender while she was trying to pull herself aboard and get out of the water. If she were dragged along a surface in a prone position, face down, you would either have gotten facial injuries if someone were holding her arms, that would have been much more substantial than this, or you would expect to have seen abrasions elsewhere if someone was pulling her by the legs. Um, the contusions and abrasions are entirely consistent with an intoxicated person trying to pull herself aboard a small boat while struggling to stay afloat. People have made um, a lot out of this extensive distribution of contusions on her body. One thing to keep in mind is that alcohol has an anticoagulant effect. It makes you bruise more readily, and what contusions you do sustain will be more marked. People who are drunk are also clumsy. It's not uncommon for somebody who's heavily intoxicated to stumble around. 
she may have inflicted at least some of these bruises before she entered the water by stumbling across the deck and banging into things. It's easy enough to do when you're sober on a boat. My lower legs, if I go out on a boat with my friends, I often come back with small bruises on my shins and on the backs of my legs, and I have no idea how I got them. I'm a klutz. That's, it doesn't mean my friends tried to kill me. It means that yeah, I probably shouldn't have had those beers, and I need to watch where I'm going. So, at the internal portion of the autopsy, the lungs were found to be wet and heavy, and the airways contained a large amount of this white froth and foam that was also seen coming out of the nose and mouth. The surfaces of the lungs had a few petechiae on them. Now, those who watch a lot of true crime shows, they hear the word petechiae and they think of strangulation. Yes, they can be caused by that. However, in this case, they're an incidental finding. It's caused by a buildup of pressure in the lungs that causes the blood vessels to engorge and back up, and you get a little few pinpoint hemorrhages. It doesn't mean foul play. It doesn't mean anything. It's an incidental finding. You can get petechiae from a lot of things. I happen to have a skin condition called dermatographism, which is literally what it sounds like. It comes from the Latin for writable skin. If I'd been born in the 1600s, I probably would be burned at the stake for this because they considered it to be a sign of witchcraft. One of the things that can happen in this uh, condition is if it, beca it produces very large hives, and these itch very aggressively. If I scratch at them, they I get petechiae on them. I can choke a picture of this if anybody's interested on my on the Twitter account podcast. It's not anything conclusive. Like I said, physical findings have to be used in concert with the totality of an investigation. If you look at physical findings at autopsy and try to draw conclusions without looking at the investigation or vice versa, you're setting yourself up for trouble. Upon examining the heart, there was no congenital defects. There was only some mild atherosclerotic change to the coronary arteries, so it's unlikely she suffered a cardiac event as a precipitating cause. It can't be ruled out because you can have um, an abnormal heart rhythm that causes you know, someone to black out or fall or whatever without any physical change to the heart that would be detectable at autopsy. However, it's extremely unlikely. The stomach upon examination was found to contain a small amount of froth. This is because people swallow water as they're drowning. It's very, very common. And there was some partly digested food found in the esophagus. At least one person I came across online tried to claim that the food in the esophagus was indicative of maybe they tried to smother her and or were putting pressure on her stomach. There's a much simpler explanation to this. If you've ever swallowed salt water, you know how, one, god-awful it tastes, and two, how almost irritating it is to the the lining of your mouth and throat. She's Miss Wood would be running on a very high level of adrenaline as she's fighting for her life. That has a nauseating effect in its own right. And she's swallowing water, and you get people who will regurgitate. It's not uncommon to find... You know, people who go into cardiac arrest, even on land, who have, you know, uh, partial um, regurgitation of food up into their esophagus or even up and out of their mouth. There were a couple of undissolved pills found at autopsy in her stomach. The pathologist suspected these were vitamins due to their size and shape. There was no markings on them, apparently, that could identify them as a prescription medication. And the fluid that was present in her stomach smelled very strongly of alcohol. I spoke with someone earlier tonight um, on Twitter, and they pointed out they thought it was odd for Miss Wood to have a full bladder. Uh, there were 300 milliliters of urine present in her bladder at autopsy. This was because they th would have expected her to avoided, have avoided urinated if she was conscious at the time she entered the water. 
There's a couple of things here. The presence or absence of urine in the bladder is not a reliable way to determine if a person was conscious or unconscious when they entered the water. Even with an unconscious person, you'll, you'll sometimes see a very full bladder. In fact, it's often indicative of a person who was unconscious for a long time before they died. You see this in drug overdoses. If you find someone who's dead in a house without apparent evidence of disease or injury, even after the autopsy, but they're found to have a distended bladder and heavy, wet lungs, this argues that it may be a drug overdose. You know, obviously you get this confirmed with toxicology, but it perks your ears up for that as a possibility. Likewise, people don't reliably urinate in stressful events or while drowning. Um, on a related note, there is a, an effect called cold-induced diuresis, but it's unlikely to have played a role here. What cold-induced diuresis is, is basically the body's attempt to control the loss of warmth is heavily reliant upon vasoconstriction. Basically, the blood vessels get smaller. So what you have is the same amount of blood circulating through smaller pipes now, which the kidneys read this as, hey, we've got too much fluid on board, let's get rid of it. So the body will try to excrete this water to reduce the blood volume. This is more of a problem in people who are pulled out of water and resuscitated because you've got a person who's lost fluid and now you rewarm them and their blood vessels dilate and they basically have become hypovolemic. Their blood volume is less than what would fill the vascular space you have available. You actually can have a person die in this way uh, simply from the fact that you know they, they go into shock because they've lost fluid and it hasn't been replaced. Like I said, it doesn't really apply here. I'm just explaining this for the sake of being thorough. Also, I want to thank the person who asked about this finding of the involving the bladder. Thank you so very much for bringing it up. It's a very good point. I hope this answers your questions. I really, really appreciate people giving me feedback and asking questions that they want answered. That's why I do this. I do this podcast to help educate people. By the way, this also brings up a point. When I'm doing an episode, if you have a question that you want answered, feel free to contact me. Message me on Twitter. It's at Skellicast1. I will, I'll do my best to either answer it there, or if it's significant and complicated and requires some extra explanation, I'll do an, ex, I'll do an episode, a mini-episode, to address something that people think I didn't pay enough attention to, or they want more detail on it. I'm happy to do that. And I have a feeling that this case is going to be one of those where there's going to be a lot of feedback about it, and people are going to have a lot of questions. So I'm happy to, I'm happy to answer them. That's why I'm here. Continuing on with the autopsy report, um, they performed full-body fluoroscopy, which is x-rays, and there were no signs of any fractures. You know, the head, there was no sign of trauma, there was no sign of anything that would have caused the death other than drowning, or that would have incapacitated her leading to the drowning. The toxicology results, you know, obviously take a while to come back, but initially on the boat there were several medications found. There was what is known as Darvon. Propoxifene, which is no longer sold in the U.S. because it really wasn't that good of a pain medication, and there was also a risk of cardiac dysrhythmia, an abnormal heart rhythm. There was another medication found called Placidil, uh, ethylchlorvinyl, which is a sedative that's no longer manufactured. It was never like recalled from the market for safety reasons. It's just there's far better options out there, and when the original manufacturer stopped making it, no one else is like, oh, we're taking this over. There was also a diuretic called metahydrin. Now, I found no information that would indicate she was taking this for a medical reason, 
And to me, what it points to is likely she was taking it to control her weight. It's not uncommon for people to abuse diuretics. Men and women, male wrestlers, uh, competitive collegiate and high school wrestlers, will use this to get into their weight class. Also found was a medication called antivertmeclizine, which is motion sickness medication. You see it also known as bonine is the other common trade name for it. Not anything significant. Also found was a medication called uh, Dalmane, florazepam. It's a benzodiazepine. It's related to Valium. Uh, Synthroid was also found. Uh, This is usually used to treat hypothyroidism, but I've never found any mention that she was hypothyroid. So I lean towards this also being used as a weight loss drug because if you induce what amounts to hyperthyroidism by taking artificial thyroid hormone while you are normothyroid, you basically your metabolism is ramped up and you lose weight as a result. They also found Bactrim, which is an antibiotic. It's commonly used for urinary tract infections and stuff like that. And Valium, uh, which is Valium. It's a sedative and anticonvulsant used for anxiety. When the results came back, her blood alcohol level was at 0.14. So just under what would make you twice the legal limit for driving in the U.S. now. There was also propoxyphene, and there was cyclazine present. It's a medication that's related to antivertmeclizine, and it may actually have been cross-reactivity here. When you have two medications that are closely related to one another, structurally or chemically, they can sometimes... One can react to the test for the other. It's where you get false positives. Both propoxyphene and meclizine or cyclozine can be sedating when taken with alcohol. They can be sedating on their own right, but it's especially pronounced when you have somebody who is drunk as well. No other substances were found. So the other medications that were found were not present in her system. There's nothing in this toxicology that would argue for her being rendered unconscious through the agency of medications. She was likely very unsteady on her feet, groggy, probably slurring her words, but there's nothing here that points to her being, quote-unquote, drugged. An average layperson seeing someone with this toxicological profile would, would likely look at them and go, well, they're drunk, and that would be the end of it. There was, there's not anything here that points to her being unable to function. She may not have functioned very well, but she would have been most likely conscious, almost certainly conscious, and able to move on her own and, you know, formulate a plan. It may not have been a very good one, but she would be able to formulate, you know, I'm going to go do this, whatever. So the witness statements are where this case gets very muddied, very prone to exaggeration and supposition and just a whole lot of bullshit, to be completely honest. So it's hard to sort out who's telling the truth and when they were telling the truth And when they're lying, it's just one big mess. What we know for certain is there was an argument between Wagner and Wood the night of her death. Wagner confirmed it in in his autobiography. Now, allegedly, according to Yacht Captain Dennis Davern, he lied to the police and said that this argument in his later statements was due to Wood uh, flirting with Christopher Walken, and this enraged Wagner. By the way, Christopher Walken is not considered a suspect, All the evidence points to him having gone to bed when they came back and having not been awake for any of this. Nobody puts him involved in any of this. So so the fact that there was an argument is not inherent evidence of foul play. Alternatively, it's 
possible that one could argue just as easily that the yacht captain was responsible if there was foul play in the aftermath of this argument. Let's say he saw Woods flirting with Walken and then decides to make a move on her and see how it would play out. She rebuffs him and he chunks her overboard. She didn't know how to swim, you know, who's going to know? Now, now, the statements made by Wagner and the original statements made by Dennis Davern point to the possibility that she got up because she couldn't sleep because of the sound of the tender, the dinghy, banging against the side of the boat. And if you've ever been on a boat and had a, another vessel docked up next to it, that banging sound is actually quite pronounced and it'll echo through the hull and it can be very annoying. Now, the way you handle this normally is you put what are called fenders, uh, which are basically either air-filled or foam-filled cylinders. But you can also use tires, but that's kind of trashy. You drop them between the two vessels, and it stops the vessels from making contact in a way that produces the noise. It doesn't sound like she would know how to do that, but she probably went up to sea and may have fallen overboard. That's one possibility. What I think is more likely would be that she decided to leave the yacht and use the tender to go ashore. Thomas Noguchi, the Los Angeles County coroner at the time, believed that Wood, drunk and under the influence of medications, fell overboard while trying to get into the tender. I see this as the most likely sequence of events here. So, what about the witnesses changing their stories? Well, there's a good chance that given the amount of booze and possibly drugs in their systems, Wagner and the yacht captain may not have a clear recollection of this night's events and may never have had a clear recollection. The other thing is, is that with all these folks changing their stories decades after the fact, it's convenient that they decide to do so as Wagner's reaching an age where he'll soon be gone and not able to defend himself, or where his memory is faulting due to cognitive decline that is a byproduct of normal human aging. Any competent defense attorney would shred these people on cross-examination. I'm not a defense attorney, and I could have a field day with these people in court. The fact that they decided to bring this stuff out publicly, podcasts, tabloids, and TV, rather than taking it to the police and quietly letting the police investigate it, speaks more to a desire for attention or perhaps payment than a desire for the truth to come out. Eyewitness testimony, especially when someone's lied in the past or has changed their story, has to be treated as flawed, or suspect. You don't take it at face value. You shouldn't take anything anybody says at face value until they, you have evidence to back it up. One of the problems in our media-driven world is that people often fail to recognize that statements made to tabloids or to podcasts that are seeking to sensationalize a case or to folks who are hosting television shows are not inherently correct, and they are not the same level of evidence you get from a witness who's being cross-examined. They're speculation, they're idle speculation, and they should be treated as such. This is especially the case when you have things like statements made to tabloid newspapers like the National Enquirer, the Daily Mail. If you need reason to not trust the Daily Mail, the Daily Mail is basically the entire reason there's a modern myth of the Loch Ness Monster. They were paying people to fabricate evidence to sell papers, which is how the Loch Ness Monster became the Loch Ness Monster. By the way, I would also like to point out something here. When I talk about a witness speaking to television hosts, the obvious one that's going to jump to mind because of the recency is Dr. Phil. No offense is intended to Dr. Phil. I've met him before. I like Dr. Phil. I'm not a big fan of his show, but I like him as a person. Um, and he could be brutally intolerant of bullshit, just like any rational person should be. 
in that regard, I see him as kind of a kindred spirit. My point is simply that these statements must be taken with a grain of salt and not allowed to be used unequivocally to lay a charge of manslaughter or murder on someone when there's a plausible alternative. Another witness statement, alleged witness statement, comes from the, quote, Fatal Voyage podcast, which sought to paint this as more of a crime than the evidence supports. They featured a woman who claimed that she heard someone screaming for help the night this all happened. Allegedly, they kept a minute-by-minute record with a, quote, new digital watch, and the record places this from between 11.05 p.m. to 11.25 p.m. They attempted, allegedly, to get in touch with the Harbor Patrol, but there is no record of such an attempt, and they've never come forward until the, with this until now. You know why? Because it's a big steaming pile of bullshit. If you hear a woman screaming for help offshore in the middle of the night, and you're not damn sure someone has called the cops or is on their way to help, the, well, we kept this handy record, but we didn't otherwise make any every effort to raise the alarm, and we didn't get an answer on our first call, so, oh well. Oh, and by the way, we just decided to not mention this until decades later. Yeah. Bullshit. It's complete and utter bullshit. It's manufactured statements, um, either by that the producers of that podcast, or by a bunch of alleged witnesses who are seeking attention for themselves. In an article in the Daily Mail, and when interviewed by the podcast I previously mentioned, the yacht captain claimed that for a lengthy period of time, Wagner more or less held him hostage under the watch of, quote, bodyguards. So, let me get this straight. Dennis, you're arguing that Wagner is a man with enough of a supposed problem with his temper and impulse control that he murdered someone during a drunken argument. He also has the power and influence to make you disappear except under the tight control of his alleged hired thugs, but he didn't think that he should just make you, quote, disappear permanently to avoid this exact situation we find ourselves in now. Oh, and you waited this many years after they stopped keeping you on a tight leash supposedly to blab to the media. Bullshit. Bull. Fucking shit. By the way, the same article in the Daily Mail claims Wood suffered, quote, multiple lacerations and a head injury. There were no lacerations on her, and the quote-unquote head injury was basically the equivalent of road rash or rug burn. So much for the accurate reporting on that one. If you can't understand the difference between superficial abrasions and minor bruises and, quote, multiple lacerations, you have no business trying to read an autopsy report. What people think Wagner did and what we can prove are two separate things, especially since there's a complete lack of corroborative evidence, and the witnesses are pretty much so unreliable as to be practically useless. Any alleged witness who waits decades to come forward in the face of a long-standing media scrutiny of a case has to be treated with a degree of caution and suspicion that borders on the almost paranoid. It may not make for good headlines, and it does not boost downloads like a sensational and disrespectful take might, but if you're listening to this podcast, you're not looking for sensationalist reporting numerous or incorrect or fabricated details or blatant disrespect for victims and their families like you would get from some shows. <coughs> my favorite murder. <coughs> Sorry, my allergies are apparently acting up. This is why no one has been charged. There's insufficient evidence to proceed in the face of an equally, if not more, plausible explanation for the events of that night. So what are the legal considerations that have to be thought of in this case? I'm going to jokingly refer to this segment as closing arguments, um, as a play on opening arguments, which is a podcast I really enjoy. Please don't sue me, Andrew. Disclaimer for what follows. I am not a lawyer. I do not claim to be a lawyer. I don't even play one on TV or in a podcast. I guess you could call me a non-attorney spokesperson. My girlfriend, who just passed her bar exam and is waiting to be sworn in as a lawyer, is sitting across the room from me and has promised to throw things at me if I screw this up too badly. 
What follows is my understanding of the law as it applies to this case. Anyone considering this to be sound legal advice is on their own and probably shouldn't be allowed out unsupervised. What any criminal charge or civil proceeding would boil down to in this is the definition of negligence and recklessness and the difference between the two. Legally, negligence is more or less carelessness or incompetence. It can be thought of as the court ruling, you freaking dumbass. Recklessness, on the other hand, is probably best explained as a legal concept of, fuck it, let's do it anyway. Recklessness is distinct from the intentional infliction of harm on another person because of the absence of an intent to do harm. In other words, or in legal parlance, malicious intent. The party who's being charged may, in fact, not want anything bad to happen to that person, but there's that damn the torpedoes lack of caution. This is why in a criminal case of involuntary manslaughter, the prosecution doesn't have to prove you had malicious intent. Malice is simply not an element of the crime in question. For those who don't know this concept, elements are simply things that you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt in order to convict someone of crime. This is where things like the person's mental state, recklessness, willfulness, and intent come into play. These are all lumped together under a term that's referred to as mens rea, for those who are curious about the legal terminology. This use of Latin is taken from an old legal concept um, in Roman times that goes actus reus non facit reum nisi mens sit reus, or simply put in English, the act cannot be guilty if the mind is not also guilty. Four years of Latin in high school comes in handy for some things other than impersonating a Catholic priest and reading obscenities um, scrawled on Roman ruins after all. By the way, this is not the same thing as motive, which is simply why the defendant did whatever they're accused of. To simplify all of this as much as it's possible to simplify anything involving lawyers, you can think of mens rea as the existence of one of the following sorts of behaviors in a defendant. You have purposeful, reckless, negligent, and or knowingful. Basically, either you did it on purpose, you didn't give a crap, and you did it anyway, you were too stupid or too incompetent to not do it, or you just you knew what you were doing was wrong, and, and yeah. There's also an element which is called the actus reus, or li- li- literally the guilty act. Boiled down to its basic form, this is where you have to prove the defendant did what they were accused of. The act and state of mind must occur together, concurrence, or the state of mind must proceed and lead to the act. Then you run into something that's called causation, which is exactly what it sounds like. If not for A, then B would not have occurred. This is why, on the coroner and medical examiner side of things, you can get a death that's ruled a homicide where the death is a result of, for example, a person dying days, weeks, months, or years later for pneumonia after they're shot and paralyzed, which requires them to be on a ventilator. The risk of ventilator-associated pneumonia would not have existed in, in all probability, if not for the intervention of the person who fired the shot that paralyzed the victim. Therefore, that death is a homicide and not a natural death or the result of accident. There's also a consideration that's called duty to act or duty of care. Basically, if you put the person in the situation, you're legally liable if you don't seek to help them in the way that a prudent person would if they knew that person was in trouble. Let's say you push someone into water and then realize they need assistance. You have a duty to render that assistance. Pushing a person that you know or should know is heavily intoxicated into cold water at night some distance from shore is pretty much the definition of reckless behavior. However, we have no reliable evidence that that's what actually transpired here. Now, let me point out a pretty important distinction that has to be kept in mind. There's a difference, a pretty big difference, between a legal duty to act or duty of care and the moral or ethical one. The vast majority of us would argue that we're obligated or ethically bound to do everything in our power to help a person who's in immediate danger of dying. Whether it rises to the level of being a legal duty to act or care is another matter. To use a real-world example I'm familiar with, even when I was an EMS provider, 
I had no legal obligation while off-duty to render care. I sure as hell had a professional ethical one and a personal moral one as uh, well, but, you know, there was no legal requirement for me to render care while off-duty. In fact, there's only a minority of states that have such laws. I could drive past a car accident and nobody could say anything. Now, my coworkers and my peers would have. So, what happens if you just see someone fall overboard or come across someone who's in danger through no action or inaction of your own? Um, this is where a case from 1907 called Michigan v. Beardsley, or People v. Beardsley, depending on the citation you use, uh, is often used as an example. It involved a defendant who was originally convicted of manslaughter for not seeking to aid his mistress when she overdosed on morphine. Instead of getting her help, he hid her in a friend's basement, and she died. The conviction was overturned on appeal because the Supreme Court of Michigan held that in this situation, there was no legal obligation to render aid, and if there's no legal obligation to do such, you cannot be found guilty of manslaughter for failing to do so. Now, it's important to keep in mind, though, that because this took place on a boat, there's a separate set of regulations that come into play. Most jurisdictions have regulations on the books that require boaters to come to the aid of another in distress to a reasonable extent that they can do without endangering themselves. California has such a regulation that requires, quote, vessel operators involved in an accident must provide their name, address, and vessel registration number to other involved parties, provide assistance to injured persons, and in the case of a death and or disappearance, report the accident without delay to law enforcement officials, end quote. I will point out that as much as I could search this, I was not able to find any case where someone was prosecuted for failure to do so aside from fines. Okay, so apparently I've run into a point where my girlfriend Julia, who, like I said, just graduated law school, just passed her bar exam, but is not a lawyer yet because she hasn't been sworn in yet, felt the need to interject something here. Okay, um, in order to be found guilty of a crime... You have to have been of sound enough mind to know or have had the capacity to know that your actions were wrong or could have caused harm to someone else at the time that you committed the crime. However, voluntary intoxication is not a defense. Um, If someone slipped you a roofie, say, and you didn't know that, and then you got in a car and you passed out, and you hit another person, that's involuntary intoxication. You're not going to be responsible for that. However, if you get hammered intentionally, and then you get in the car, and you drive, and you hit another person, you are absolutely going to be responsible for that, because you intentionally got yourself intoxicated. So, voluntary intoxication, not a defense. Involuntary intoxication is going to be a defense to a certain extent. And uh, thank you to Julia for clarifying that, because... It would have sounded far more confusing if I tried to explain it. Thank you. So, in strict legal terms, defining recklessness comes down to things that are referred to as tests. In this setting, there are subjective tests and objective tests of recklessness, but they're both contingent on knowledge, awareness, and capacity of the defendant to know or to be reasonably expected to know that the action or inaction, omission or commission in other terms, um, could result in harm. The subjective test is used to explore what the defendant knew or likely thought was correct at the time of the event. The objective test is used to explore what a legal standard individual, the reasonable person or prudent layperson standard, would have thought, believed, or done in that circumstance. Like I mentioned before, there are elements to crime, and there's elements to recklessness as well. 
you have a defendant who knows or has reason to suspect that there are others present and either in harm's way or would be subject to harm as a result of the course of action or inaction they are considering to take. They intend to commit the act in question, be it omission or commission, knowing that it does or may create a risk of harm or increase the risk associated with what is already a risky circumstance. The risk involved in whatever act or inaction is considered, it would have to be considered to be unreasonable by an average person, by a prudent person. The risk produced by this reckless conduct also has to be greater than what you would get from simply being negligent, being careless. When there is a death that results, you get a potential charge of either negligent homicide or involuntary manslaughter, depending on what the jurisdiction calls it. A death caused by conduct that has grossly deviated from ordinary care by someone who has a duty to act or a duty to care. Um, now, the finer points of the statute will vary from state to state. California also defines you know, involuntary manslaughter as one that results from reckless, careless, or unreasonable behavior during lawful activities. So what about the civil side of this? Well, the problem with that is the length of time that's passed. The statute of limitations in California for injury to a person is two years. Two years from the time of a person dying or being injured. I'm not sure if there's a workaround for that in the circumstances of this case because I'm not a lawyer, nor do I pretend to be one. This uh, concludes tonight's episode of Law Schoolhouse Rock. Thank you for listening. Okay, so regarding cause and manner of death and the contributing factors often get debated in this case. I'm honestly quite dubious of the reasoning for the change in the manner of death. It probably should be considered undetermined just because of the conflicting statements, dubious as they might be. Although I do think there's plenty of evidence to argue that this was a straightforward accidental drowning. I simply think that the delay in the witness coming forward is more of a strike against this being foul play. To me, it seems like they're trying to set the stage for a wrongful death suit against the estate, assuming they can get around the statute of limitations, uh, once Mr. Wagner's no longer able to defend himself. It's either that or they found some way of profiting from telling their quote-unquote story to various media outlets and so forth. They want attention for themselves. So many people like to say that, well, it was never determined how she entered the water. Let me point out that in many cases of drowning, we never figure out the finer points of what exactly happened, but we can come up with a reasonable and evidence-based presumption of what happened, or we can produce an, a working model that fits the evidence at hand. That's been done here. There's no mystery to that. One of the other podcasters that I allowed to read the script of this beforehand asked, well, if the body and the tender were set adrift at the same time in the same place, why did they wind up not together when they were located? This boils down to two factors, wind and current. Objects that are floating and have a lot of area above the surface, like a boat, are pushed by the wind, and that determines their course to a large degree. A body floating face down has very little, for lack of a better term, sail area. They don't have much to be pushed along, so they're carried along by the current. They may not go nearly as far, and they may go in a completely different direction if there's a strong, you know, a strong current involved. That's what explains why those two were not found together. So what sequence of events seems supportable by the evidence at hand? Well, what do we know for certain? There is a verbal altercation. All of the parties were legally intoxicated by alcohol or a combination of alcohol and medication. The water was cold, the night was dark, and most potential witnesses ashore and other vessels would have been inside at the time this occurred. 
There's no evidence of incapacitating trauma. And for someone used to taking these medications as the victim was, the level sound during the toxicological exam would not have been incapacitating. Likewise, the internal autopsy findings indicate that she was breathing when she entered the water. Based on this, what happened? Well, let me start by saying foul play cannot be definitively ruled out. It is possible someone shoved her overboard, but this could just as likely have been the yacht captain as it was her husband. If we're going by quote-unquote what-ifs, a sexual rebuff from a famous, beautiful woman could have enraged this guy enough for him to give her a shove. There's no evidence to support this, but it's an argument that any defense attorney would make if this were brought to trial. There's the possibility of a cardiac dysrhythmia, an abnormal heart rhythm, brought on by the use of propoxyphene, or possibly the interaction between propoxyphene, Darvon, and alcohol. It doesn't have to be a lethal arrhythmia. You can get a transient abnormal rhythm that lasts just a few seconds that causes your blood pressure to drop and you either brown out or black out for a few seconds. This would be enough to cause a person to stumble or fall. However, I think the evidence for this is pretty scant. It's certainly not something I would argue with conviction in court. The other option, it's a completely accidental death. Miss Wood decides to untie the tender from the cleat or cleats or she untied the boat to readjust it so that it would stop banging against the hull, as was supposed by witnesses. Now, supposing she was trying to go ashore. Upon stepping in, she either misses the tender and falls between the boat and the tender, or she finds herself in a precarious position where she has one foot on each vessel as they start to drift apart. Once a tipping point is reached, and no pun or disrespect is intended, she cannot maintain her balance and she goes into the water. The reflexive gasping inherent with cold water immersion would have likely made it impossible for her to effectively scream for help. She's alone, drifting away from the yacht, and trying to cling to the only source of flotation she has, the dinghy, the tender. As she struggled to board it, her legs would have banged against the underside, producing the contusions on her legs. Attempts to grab the vessel would have produced similar marks on her forearms and on her face. Her face being dragged down by gravity as she huddled against the hull would have left the vertically oriented superficial abrasions that were seen at autopsy. Finally, she loses her strength to hold on, and she falls off the boat and drowns, drawing the cold water of the Pacific into her lungs. Deprived of oxygen, her heart and brain would have shut down, and thus ended the life of a talented, charming, gifted, and much-loved Hollywood legend. No matter how one feels about a victim or a potential suspect, it's important to remember that the goal of an investigation is not revenge. It's not punishment. It's not seeking to remove the pound of flesh for one's shortcomings as a person. The purpose, the only valid purpose, is to determine what happened based on the totality of the evidence. The purpose is to help identify the guilty and exonerate the innocent while giving the victim the respect and the justice they deserve. Screwing someone to the floor simply because they may be unpleasant, hot-headed, or even a gaping prolapse anus in some instances is not justice. It serves only to inflict harm upon both the accused and the memory of the victim. What I think is lost on far too many people when they consider this case is the sad irony that one of the most talented actresses of the 20th century is reduced to almost a prop in the last act of the story of her own life. She has ceased for many to be the graceful leading lady and is treated as a mere pawn in the rush to condemn her husband. Do me a favor. Go watch Natalie's work. Whatever you want to see, she probably had done something you would enjoy. Rebel Without a Cause is my choice, but then again, I'm also a Salmonio fan. During the upcoming holidays, introduce your kids, nieces, nephews, or grandchildren to the joys of the original version of Miracle on 34th Street. Even jaded as I am, that movie still brings a smile to my face. The ancient Egyptians had a belief that no person dies so long as their name is still spoken. This is the way you honor Natalie's memory. 
and how you balance the loss the world suffered that night off Catalina. You speak her name, you appreciate her works, and you make sure that who she was and what she gave to this world is never forgotten.